DiscerningHearts.com and the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology presents The Gospel of Divine Mercy, recorded at the 2016 Fullness of Truth Conference located at Prince of Peace Catholic Church in Houston, Texas. President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, Dr. Scott Hahn, and St. Paul Center Fellows, Dr. John Berksman and Dr. Michael Barber, in a series of six conference talks, explored various questions surrounding the mystery of mercy. What is mercy? Is it an emotion, an action, an affront to justice, or an expression of justice? Moreover, what does it look like in action? Where do we find it described in sacred scripture? What do we need to do to receive it? And how do we share God's mercy as we go about our lives in the world today? During the course of the six conference talks, they explore these questions and more, attempting to plumb the depths of the all-important manifestation of God's healing, forgiving, transforming, faithful love with the help of sacred scripture. We now begin conference talk four, featuring Dr. John Bergsman, who presents Mercy and Alms. Mercy and Alms is our topic today, and um, uh, let's begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, you have shown us mercy, and we desire to show it to others. Help us to be detached from the things of this world so that we can be generous with what you have given us. And in this way, purify our hearts and souls and make them ready for your heavenly kingdom. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So in this talk this morning, uh, we're going to learn some Greek words for mercy in the New Testament and the biblical background for these words. We're also going to look at the connection between mercy and the Eucharist, which Dr. Barber and Dr. Hahn have also touched on already, and the connection between the Eucharist and almsgiving. And last of all, we're going to look at some cool medieval art. So we're going to have a good time today. We're going to start by talking about what does mercy mean in the New Testament. So we have uh, this passage, Matthew 9, 13, where our Lord speaks to the Pharisees and says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And there in the Greek of Matthew, uh, our Lord says, I desire eloos, which we talked about last night. And if we compare that uh, quotation of our Lord in Matthew uh, to Hosea 6.6, 6, which is indeed the um, scripture verse that our Lord is quoting, we see that Hosea's Hebrew has there for mercy, unsurprisingly, chesed. Everybody say chesed with me. Ready? Chesed. And that's that uh, term that we learned quite a bit about uh, last evening. So I desire chesed, covenant faithfulness, and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So the point is, when we move into the New Testament, and the New Testament is using this term eloos, what the New Testament means by that really is the Old Testament concept of chesed. That's how it's moving from Hebrew into Greek. And again, it has this rich notion of faithfulness to the covenant. We also see this in Matthew 12, 7, where our Lord says, 
uh, again to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy, there it's Eloos again, and faith, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So when our Lord says the greater matters of the law are justice, mercy, and faith, this is clearly an Old Testament triad that we find often in the Psalms and elsewhere of mishpat, which is judgment, chesed, mercy, and emet, which is truth or faith. From that root emet, you can probably see the basis of our word amen, okay, which is based off the same root. When we say amen, we're saying it is true, or I confirm the truth. So, the body of Christ, amen, I believe. See, we're being asked to make an act of faith before we receive the Eucharist. And let me just say a little bit about that concerning faith in the Eucharist. Um, <clears throat> because although every Eucharist has the fullness of God's grace in it, objectively, it's there. Okay? For us to receive God's grace subjectively, for it to have real impact in our life, we have to exercise faith. Okay? So it's not, just, it's not grace or faith, it's faith and grace. So there is good reason to encourage and cultivate our faith when we go to Mass, to truly believe and to dispose ourselves when we come before the Eucharist to really make an act of faith when we receive that. And the church, the reason why the church challenges us by holding up the host and saying the body of Christ, the church is asking us to make that act of faith that it truly is what God tells us it is, and then the church gives us the sacrament and that grace can come into our lives. But when we come forward and just mouth the words, or Catholics who don't even understand what amen means and don't know what they're doing, okay, they're not going to receive that grace subjectively uh, such that it can transform their lives and really do what God wants to do in their lives. And that's why we see persons who may take the Eucharist regularly, but we're not, you're not seeing that transforming power. It's because they are not making the act of faith. They are not believing and trusting in our Lord. And so it, it, the reason I mention this is because we know our Protestant brothers and sisters stress this element of faith so much, you know, and sometimes they put it uh, in contrast or in opposition to things like God's law. They'll say it's either faith or God's law, or they'll put it in opposition to sacraments, faith or sacraments. You know, you Catholics think it's by the sacraments, but we think it's by faith, okay? Those are all false divisions, okay? It's faith and works, faith and God's law, faith and the sacrament. So you come forward, you make your act of faith, then you receive the sacrament. Amen? So as Catholics, we need to encourage our faith, cultivate our faith, truly believe, okay, so that we can receive and start those juices flowing from the divine, okay? Um, get that, that flow of grace uh, flowing from the side of Christ, flowing through us. So coming back to this, um, now, justice, mercy, and faith, mishpat, chesed, and emet, say it with me, ready? Mishpat, chesed, 
and emet. Okay? These are um, covenantal terms as well. The mishpat, we say that's judgment. If you were in a covenant relationship with another person and you didn't keep your covenant promises, that person, your covenant partner, could take you to court and get a judgment against you for you know, breach of covenant. Okay? And that was a, a mishpat, okay? a, a judgment or an act of justice. Um, chesed is, as we said last night, this uh, faithfulness, this love, this loyalty, a very rich, multidimensional concept of how you should act towards somebody who's in a covenant with you. And then, and then emet is, is speaking the truth and acting on the truth. So you promised to be my covenant partner. You promised to be faithful to me. Now, make sure that your promises are true, that you keep them. Okay, so like in marriage, you know, when you're faithful to your spouse in marriage, you are doing the truth. Okay, you are making true the words you spoke up here. You said for better or for worse. Okay, America just wants for better. Okay, but, but we said for better or for worse in sickness and in health. Again, America just wants in health. Okay. We said in sickness and health, for better or for worse, etc. Okay? So, so when you're faithful to your spouse, you are retroactively making your words true. Amen? Okay? So let's live the truth. Okay? And not let the words that come out of our mouth fall to the ground and be false. Okay? So making your words true, that's all part of keeping covenant. Likewise, when, we're, when we became Catholics, we made all kinds of promises. Think about those promises we made when we had our children baptized, okay? You know, it would be probably a healthy thing for us periodically uh, to, to dig out the rite of baptism and read back over that, you know, and think about what we promised to do to raise our children in the faith, you know? We make a lot of promises associated with the different sacraments that we received, and then we, we do them, we have a party, we take a bunch of pictures with the bishop, you know, bada boom, bada bing, you know, there you go. And uh, don't think about it again. But, you know, maybe we ought to, you know, try to find, you know, the rite of confirmation, rite of baptism, etc. Look those things back over and remember what it was that, uh, that we promised we were going to do when we, when we swore those covenant oaths and came into the church so that we can make our words true. Amen? Amen. Okay, so these are covenantal terms, mishpat, chesed, and emet. And um, our Lord is criticizing the Pharisees here, um, but... I want to clarify some things about the Pharisees because there's a lot of mistaken notions, especially in our culture. Um, the idea in our culture, and you even get this in the church, is that the Pharisees were really righteous people, okay? And they obeyed God's law very carefully. And Jesus criticized them for being scrupulous. And he said, ah, you guys, you know, you're too uptight. You Pharisees should relax, you know. Those little laws of God, they're not all that important. You can fudge some of the law of God, you know. You should be so uptight. Do like I do and fudge God's law, okay? No! No, this is not what was at issue, and this is not what Jesus was telling the Pharisees. But I think a lot of people look at that. So if you try to get to Mass weekly, which is your commitment as a Catholic, if you are open to life and if you don't use artificial contraception, 
Um, if you're committed, you know, to the indissolubility of marriage, you would never contemplate divorce, and you don't think other people should contemplate divorce, uh, much less act on it. Um, you know, if you, if, you, if you read the Bible in the home and you're really trying to catechize your kids and make sure that they go to uh, a school that, uh, that will help their faith and not harm their faith and so on, then, then so, you, you know, might have a friend who says, you're a Pharisee. All, you know, doing all those things, you know, and trying to do your faithful Catholic thing. And you're a Pharisee, okay? That's totally wrong, okay? Jesus did not criticize the Pharisees for trying hard to follow God's law. Are you with me? Okay. He did not criticize them for that. Look at this. Look at, read this over again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. It's like... So the Old Testament said you have to give 10%, right? And the Pharisees were so particular about this, even when they bought herbs, okay? So you go to Walmart, you know, you go to the spices aisle, right? You grab some McCormick spices off of the rack, right? And you get yourself some cumin, you get some cilantro for your chili, you know, and, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff, and uh, some chili powder and you know, red pepper, you know. And then you go home on your kitchen counter and, and you open up the little McCormick glass uh, thing and you tap out 10% onto the counter, set the side. I'm going to bring that to Father Joe on Sunday, okay? <laughs> you know, so he can have some cilantro and some red pepper and whatnot, you know. So th- this is the kind of thing that the Pharisees were actually doing that. They were tithing of their herbs, and, and Jesus tells them, ah, for heaven's sake, don't bother tithing on your herbs. Does he tell them that? Actually, he doesn't. Look at what he says. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he's actually saying, yeah, that was fine. That was fine that you were so careful that you were tithing off of your herbs. That was, that was um, a sign of devotion that you'd even think of doing it to that level. That, that's, I'm not, it's not that, you know, it's not that that I'm criticizing you for. It's that you were doing that, but forgetting about bigger things. Okay? So that's what Jesus criticized the Pharisees for. Not for trying hard to follow the law, but neglecting the biggest aspects of the law. Okay? What the Pharisees basically did was they found loopholes. Okay? loopholes to get around the important things. So, look, you know, some commands of the Old Testament are more important than others. You know, the the Ten Commandments have pride of place. Those are like the biggies, and then other things come under that. One of the Ten Commandments is honoring your father and your mother, which would include supporting them in their old age. Well, the Pharisees found a loophole way on down, you know, in the fine print of the Mosaic Law, where if you, if you donated your wealth to the temple, then you didn't have to use it to support your elderly parents, and so on. So what the Pharisees would do is, they would ceremonially donate all their wealth to the temple uh, while their parents were alive and say, sorry, Mom and Dad, you know, you got to live on Social Security. Uh, I can't do anything to help you because I've given all my wealth, I've dedicated it all to the temple, you know. And then when, uh, when their parents were deceased, they would, 
de-dedicate that wealth and, and take it back. And our Lord criticized, criticized them for that because they were using a loophole to get around God's law, right? So that's what the Pharisees were about. They were not righteous people. They were not people that were really highly moral. Okay? They were people that knew the law really well. They knew canon law really well, and they would use it to get around having to do things that cost them, okay? Having to do things that, that involved making a sacrifice on their part, and that's the issue. So in this, you know, we had a real irony in this last, uh, when the family synod was going on a couple of years ago, or not even that long ago, but like last year. And sometimes uh, persons who really affirmed the indissolubility of marriage and said, look, divorce is not an option for those who've been baptized and have dedicated themselves to following Christ out of Christ's words. And other people say, oh, you're being a Pharisee, okay? Because you're, uh, you know, you're so stringent on marriage, you know? But look, Pharisees had no problem with divorce, it was Jesus who had the issue with divorce. Okay? It was Jesus who said that um, if you divorce and remarry, you're causing your spouse to commit adultery or etc. Okay? So when you uphold the indissolubility of marriage, okay, that's taking a stand with Jesus. Okay? The Pharisees, hey, you know, among the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees said you could divorce for any reason. In fact, in the rabbinic literature, one, one, Pharisee, one, uh, one rabbi says, yeah, even if you see a younger, more attractive woman, you can divorce. Wow! That's so wrong. That's so wrong. Okay? But this is the kind of thing that, that was going on. And, uh, and Jesus says, no, be faithful to the wife of your youth, as it says in Proverbs, that Marital fidelity, it's an image of God's faithfulness to his people. God doesn't divorce his people uh, and marry another. God is always faithful to his people. So the, uh, the Pharisees were using Deuteronomy 24, where Moses gives permission for a certificate of divorce to, to open wide for divorcing for any reason, etc. So uh, that's the Pharisaic position, and uh, our Lord taught uh, faithfulness, lifelong faithfulness that... Uh, Divorce was not an option. So anyway, this is all, you know, all around, all by way of saying, let's understand the Pharisees. They were not highly moral people. They were, again, lawyers who used loopholes, as lawyers are wont to do, okay, to get around having to uh, fulfill a painful obligation. In any event, um, let's talk about mercy here. So Our Lord says that mercy is one of the major aspects of the law, and mercy is covenant fidelity. And of course that relates to marriage because we're called to show chesed to our spouse uh, in marriage, and that is a very important thing uh, in in God's law and God's will for our lives. Um, I want to look at some other places where mercy is used in the New Testament, and in fact it, it plays a very important role in two very important uh, songs that we find in the New Testament. Um, Our Our Lady's Magnificat, which we use in uh, evening prayer, and also what we call Zachariah's Benedictus, uh, which we use in morning prayer. For those of you who uh, pray the the hours, how many have uh, ever prayed the office? 
divine office. Okay, a lot of you. Okay, liturgy of the hours. Okay, so a lot of you have uh, had some experience with this. So let's uh, read uh, together. Let's read it responsorially. You can uh, read what's in the dark print, and I'll read what's in the light print here. And uh, let's do some of the Magnificat together. So, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud with the And he has put down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of low degree. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the He has helped his servant Israel. As he spoke to our fathers. Now, I just want to point out something that I only discovered this maybe five or six years ago that I think is so beautiful. And that is, our Blessed Mother is really talking about covenant fidelity in the Magnificat, but we mostly miss it. Let's look at those last lines in Luke chapter 1. They're verses 54 and 55, where our Blessed Mother says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Now, that's kind of an odd way to talk, isn't it? I mean, we don't talk about remembering mercy in English very much. You know, I don't come home from work and, uh, you know, kiss my wife and say, Hi, honey, have you remembered mercy today? You know, like, what would that mean? You know, I guess we can kind of figure out it means something like uh, maybe remembering to be merciful. But it's just an odd idiom. Well, it's actually a Hebrew idiom. Okay, it doesn't work in English, it doesn't work in Greek, but it works in Hebrew. And for this reason, many think that Luke is translating from Hebrew in, uh, in Luke chapter 1. But in Hebrew, we can find many examples in the Old Testament to remember the chesed, because okay, so that's what, it's to zachar the chesed, is what we're saying here, to remember the mercy. That means to, re- to call to mind your covenant obligations, your chesed, okay? That's to be faithful, okay? And to act on them, okay? So he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. That means he's helped Israel in fulfillment of his covenant obligations, okay? Well, what covenant? Goes on to say, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever, and there, our Blessed Mother is referring back to Genesis twenty-two eighteen, where Abraham took his only begotten son Isaac and laid the wood of the sacrifice on Isaac's back, and Isaac carried the wood of his sacrifice up Mount Moriah, and at the top of the mountain, Isaac was laid on the wood, and Abraham attempted to sacrifice him to God out of love for his father. And when God saw that, saw that Abraham and Isaac were willing to undergo the sacrifice that he, the Holy Trinity, would have to undergo in order to bring blessing to the whole world. When God saw Abraham and Isaac's willingness, uh, God sent an angel and said, stop, okay, stop this sacrifice. There's a ram in the thicket, 
And then God swore an oath to Abraham and said, Because you have done this and have not withheld from me your son, your only begotten son, I will surely bless you and make your name great, etc. And through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this is the great divine oath at what we call the Akedah in Hebrew or the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22. The great divine oath, remember that a covenant is the extension of kinship by oath. So, our, our, uh, so God was swearing to Abraham, finalizing the Abrahamic covenant by, by a solemn divine oath and promising Abraham that he would um, pour out mercy through Abraham and his seed. That's literally what's going on. They translate it posterity in our English here. So, so what is the Blessed Mother doing? She's saying that, you know, praise God for this child conceived in my womb God has been faithful to the covenant with Abraham. That's what it means to remember his mercy. And so every time that we recite the Magnificat, say in evening prayer, what we're doing is continually giving thanks to God for his covenant faithfulness. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Well, let's look uh, now... at uh, the way that mercy functions in the Benedictus, which we recite during morning prayer. Um, so let's, uh, let's recite some of this together. Uh, again, you can do the bold. So, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, okay, and of course the Benedictus continues on, but I want to stop here and just look at, the, at these three phrases. About halfway into the Benedictus, um, Zachariah is praising God that he has performed the mercy promise to our fathers. And again, this is an odd thing. We don't, in English, we don't usually talk about performing mercy, okay? But in Hebrew, you talk about doing chesed. In Hebrew, again, it's asa chesed, okay? The verb is asa, to do or make, and, uh, and, and mercy, of course, is chesed. So say that with me. It's asa chesed, ready? Asa chesed, okay? That's to do the mercy. It's to, to be faithful, to your covenant. So he has, he has done the mercy promised to our fathers. What does that mean, Zechariah? Well, that means the same thing as to remember his holy covenant, his barith, to Zachar the barith. Okay, Zachar barith. Say that with me. Ready? Zachar barith. Okay, to remember his holy covenant. Well, <clears throat> Zechariah, what really is the holy covenant? It's this. The oath. The Shiva, which comes from seven, you know, from listening to Dr. Han, that seven is the number of oath or covenant. You seven yourself when you make an oath, okay? It's the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And isn't this interesting? If you look back in Genesis, you'll find that God only swears an oath to Abraham once. Okay? And that's in Genesis 22, verses 15 and 18. 
It's the same oath that I just mentioned when we were looking at the Magnificat. It's when Abraham and Isaac went to the top of the mountain and tried to sacrifice Isaac. God called it off and then swore that solemn oath to Abraham and to his seed. Okay, there in Genesis 22:18. So isn't that interesting that when both the Blessed Mother and Holy Zechariah are giving thanks to God for the birth of these miraculous children, Jesus the Christ and John the Baptist, whose nativity we just celebrated a day or two ago, um, <clears throat> they both go back to God swearing the oath to Abraham, that Abrahamic covenant, and, uh, and they see this as a fulfillment. But, uh, but what's particularly striking here in these verses is, is we see three basically synonymous statements. To perform the mercy, to remember the holy covenant, and the oath sworn to Abraham, these all mean basically the same thing. And that shows us how mercy, covenant, and oath are all kind of tied together. That when God shows us mercy, what he's doing is being faithful to his covenant. And when we come into Mass and we say, Kyrie eleison, which is based off of Elaos, mercy, okay, Lord have mercy, we're not just saying, hey, Lord, just forgive our sins for no reason whatsoever, okay, um, just wipe the slate blank because you could do that because you're God and you can do anything, okay, not doing any of those kind of things, but we come in as we say, Kyrie eleison, we say, Lord, keep your promises to us. And what were some of these promises? One of the promises was he would always be faithful even when we're unfaithful. And how are we unfaithful? Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. That's how we were unfaithful. So we confess our infidelity to the covenant, but we call on God to to be faithful to what he promised to us. That's what's going on when we come into Mass. Okay, let's... um, Let's talk now about where mercy goes in the New Testament. So we understand that Elaos in the New Testament, this is based off of chesed. But it develops in the New Testament, and another word is based off of Elaos. And so we see that in in the New Testament, the word for charitable gifts is Elaemosune. Okay, that's hard for me to say. Ele Mosune, there we go, okay? And Ele Mosune is based off of the root Elaos, and you kind of can see that at the front of Ele Mosune, okay? And so really that word means mercifulness, right? And Ele Mosune eventually contracts to our word alms, and I think everybody's grateful that it contracted, because that's a darn mouthful there, you know? Uh, I'd like to give you some money uh, as an Ella Amos, uh, an Ella, uh, that, as an alm. Okay. Um, can't even say what I'm giving to you. Um, yeah, so it contracts to alms, but the, the original meaning of alms is mercifulnesses. Okay? They're like concrete drops of mercy. Yeah, that's what, that's what an alm is. And our Lord talks about almsgiving uh, quite a bit in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 2. Our Lord says, thus, when you give alms, literally in the Greek, it's when you do mercifulnesses, okay? Sound no trumpet before you, but when you do these mercies or when you do these mercifulnesses, 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your alms may be in secret. And this was, of course, because the Pharisees uh, wanted to call attention to the fact that they were obeying God's law. And uh, so they would, they would actually arrange to have trumpeters come out, and you know, I'm giving out alms. <laughs> How magnanimous I am to poor peasants. Have some silver coins. Okay. Yeah, and it's all, it was all a big ego trip. Okay, big public ego trip. But the, the giving of alms by itself was not an ego trip, provided you did it with the right spirit. And here's a, a wonderful verse from the Old Testament. And a lot of the theology of almsgiving in the Bible really comes back to this verse. Let's read it together. Ready? He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Okay? He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Okay? This means if you want to give money to God, look for someone in need. Okay? Every person in need is like a Western Union wiring opportunity. Okay? When you give your money to them, it gets wired right up to God. Okay? And you put God in your debt. Okay? Like, oh, okay. I owe Joe something now. Because he did what I do. I am the God who cares for the poor. And here Joe went and beat me to it. So now I got to pay Joe back because he's doing the divine work. Okay? It's kind of like that. Yeah, we don't want to push that too far. But, um, but this, is, this is what Proverbs is, is saying, that we're lending to God. You're, you're putting the divine, if you were. I mean, this is a metaphor. I don't want to take this too literally, because from another perspective, we could say that nothing that we do could ever put God in his debt. Everything from God is gratuitous. What do we have that's not been given to us? So we could stress that aspect. But the Bible invites us to, to trust God. And the Bible invites us to use a little metaphor, okay? And to think that when we are generous with our deeds, we are putting the Lord in our debt and he will surely repay. Basically, it's the concept that, of what the saints say that the Lord is now outdone in generosity, okay? The Lord is not outdone in generosity. Amen. So we don't need to worry that, oh, I'm going to be generous with God by giving to the poor, and the Lord's going to leave me out to dry, okay? Uh, the Lord's going to, you know, hang me out there, and he's not going to support me. Um, you know, and let me just give testimony. I want to give testimony. You know, I want to give testimony in the, in the presence of God's people, okay? We talked about that yesterday with a Todah psalm. Well, I want to have a little Todah psalm right, right here, okay? And, and we, don't have, we don't have the goat and the bratwurst and the and the uh, potato salad for the feast. Maybe that will come later at lunchtime. But, uh, but I want to give testimony before you. You know, the Lord has been faithful to me. My, my parents, one of the good things that they taught me was to tithe off my income. So I started that when I was 15, got my first job um, uh, sweeping uh, floors at my high school for about two hours afterwards. And I would tithe off that, and I would take Take, that, take 10% of what I made there, and I would support a Compassion Child. Compassion International is a, is a Protestant, an evangelical Protestant group that 
supports children in the developing world, right, uh, in India and Thailand and so on. And so I made a practice of that uh, through my whole life. Um, I've, I've, I've seen three children now go through the entire uh, compassion program. Um, and just recently, after my third child uh, graduated from the program that I was supporting in India, I shifted now to a uh, Catholic program um, and uh, support a child now in Venezuela. But, uh, but I started that practice... And, uh, you know, I've been through some crazy stuff, you know. My poor wife, she didn't know what she was getting into uh, when she signed on to, to be part of the John Bergsma effort here. Um, but uh, my poor wife, we were married 11 years before I had a decent job, okay. For the first 11 years of our marriage and for the first five year, uh, for the first five children, okay, she was married to a graduate student. You know how much graduate students make? They don't really make anything. Um, I have to, you know, I was supporting myself with odd jobs as a janitor, working in a bookstore, um, uh, you know, pastoring uh, a church for a while. Um, I had a little little fellowship stipend when I got to Notre Dame, but um, that was extremely limited. And my, my wife uh, put up with me and. And all that, but uh, but you know through through that all through all of that, um, I always remember what my mother said to to uh, to tithe off the income. And thanks be to God, we have never been hungry, okay? we've never been in need, okay? we've always had our, our medical needs met. Uh, my wife and I, I just give thanks to God. I don't know how it happened. Okay, looking back on it, you know, sometimes it was so so extreme, but. Never have been in need. And I just give thanks to God for his faithfulness. He really looks after us. Um, and he can't be outdone in generosity. Amen? Amen? So he is kind to the poor. Lend to the Lord. He will repay him for his deed. God will watch over us. You know, again, our Lord says, you know, look at the grass in the field. Look at the birds in the air. They don't toil away or store up in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. And, uh, oops, I just lost contact with my um, screen up there. Could Mr. Technician come and save me? <laughs> it's just saying pro, and that's not what's up there. So, I will, uh, but we have this, uh, let's look on our outlines. Where are we up to? That working again. Okay, we're on the back sheet. Okay, we're on the second page. So let's look at how almsgiving is commended in the New Testament. This, this flows right from uh, Proverbs uh, 19.7. We see an example of this because the centurion Cornelius uh, was a devout man who feared God with all his household, and he gave alms liberally to the people and prayed constantly to God. Thank you. <clears throat> and um, and uh, when, when Cornelius was praying, an angel appeared to him, and then it picks up in Acts 10.4, and uh, he, Cornelius, stared at the angel in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. 
And again, later in Acts 10, he recounts this, saying, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. And that term, remember, is, uh, is very important. Because in the Old Testament, there was actually a sacrifice that was called a remembrance sacrifice or a memorial sacrifice that you would offer in the altar and it would go up and smoke before God and it was kind of a prayer that God would remember you and be uh, merciful to you. And here we see how these alms that this Gentile Roman soldier was offering were, were going up as sacrifices to God. And that God was, as it were, counting them and looking upon them as he would look upon the sacrifices that Jews were bringing into the temple and making there. So even though this man was cut off from the covenant, and wasn't really part of the Jewish nation and wasn't an heir to the covenant of Abraham, nonetheless, when God saw his kindness to the people of God, to the Jewish people, he accepted these alms as a sacrificial offering. And that's what, that leads into what we're going to see later, how almsgiving and the Eucharist are so closely interrelated. And why is that? It's because mercy really needs to be concrete. Okay? Um, and, unless mercy comes down to where, as they say, the rubber hits the road, okay, then mercy really isn't mercy. We see this in Psalm 136, for example, one of the great psalms that praises God for his mercy. But what we find is that God's mercy in the Old Testament was very specific. Let's, uh, let's read just this, these three call and responses here. Again, you can do the bold. Give thanks to him who divided the Red Sea in sunder and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. Notice that when the ancient Hebrew poet thanks God for his mercy, he's not vague about it. It's not like, oh yeah, Lord, you were kind of generally faithful. Can't think of a specific example, but I'm sure you were back in the day, you know. It's not that at all. No, look, you did concrete acts, you divided the Red Sea. You made us pass through the midst of it. This is physical. This is historical. You overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. Okay? Your mercy was made concrete. Because mercy has to be concrete. Otherwise, it's not true to its nature. So, not only must mercy be concrete, but mercy also needs to be personal. You see, mercy is a covenant category. And when... when um, when we're faithful to someone in a covenant, we're entering into a relationship with them. So alms, almsgiving in ancient times, we're going to see this more specifically in a moment, they were really oriented to building relationships. Um, for example, in medieval times, when you went out to give alms to the poor, you didn't send somebody to do it on your behalf. Okay? You would go out yourself and walk through the streets and find beggars or lepers or people that were sick and so on, and you would give them food with your own hands. And part of the whole thing was that you saw them, you looked at them, you said hello, you wished them, you wished them God's blessing on their life, and you, and you made some kind of concrete gesture to help them. Okay, Because it wasn't just about getting a handout, but it was seeing that, you know, uh, 
Princess Elizabeth really cares about me. Even though she's the princess, she comes out in her finery and walks down the street and gets her feet muddy, and she actually will touch me and hand me something. And so I know her face to face. Okay? And, and that builds family, that builds covenant. We're all Christians, we're all Catholics together, from the very wealthiest to the very poorest. Okay? And it builds community, it builds family. So almsgiving should be as personal as we can. So impersonal giving is not sufficient. Part of the purpose of alms is to restore and unite the impoverished person with the rest of the community. That's the danger of our modern age where you know, social welfare and so on is kind of gray and impersonal. You, know, you go to the government, and you fill out some forms, and then they send you a check and so on. And, and who's giving and who's getting, we're, we're separated by all this paperwork and bureaucracy, etc., Okay? But as Catholics, we've got to fight against that and try to be personally involved so that, so that those who are in need are not out of sight, out of mind. So we come to know them as persons. Because one of the things that you need when you're, when you're economically challenged, when you're poor, when you're down in the luck, when you're sick and so on, you need to feel that people care about you. Okay? I mean, money is nice, you need that too, but you need to feel part of the community. And oftentimes when you don't have money and when you don't have health, you feel like people don't want you around and that you're not part of the family and that you're not loved and respected anymore. And so we need to make that personal effort to go out and say, not only am I helping your personal needs, but I want to know, I care about you. I care enough to show up. I'm not afraid to touch you and give you a hug, okay? Uh, I want you to know that I'm here, personal, face-to-face. So alms are like incarnations of mercy. And they're analogous, in a way, to the Eucharist, because the Eucharist is mercy come down and made concrete. So let's see this, for example. Let's talk about the Eucharist and how it's mercy made concrete uh, when we look at the Scriptures. In Luke 22, 20, our Lord says, This cup is is the new covenant in my blood, which means consisting of my blood. And as Dr. Hahn has pointed out many times, the New Testament does not identify the new covenant as a set of books, okay, 27 books that come at the end of the Bible, but the New Testament identifies the new covenant as the Eucharist. Okay, So, if you're just reading the New Testament books, those 27 books, but you're not coming to receive the Eucharist, what you're doing is like going to a Chinese restaurant and reading the menu, but never eating General Tso's chicken. Okay. So I'm sorry, but our separated brothers and sisters, a lot of them are just reading the menu, and they're never coming and actually eating the meal, which is what Jesus calls the Eucharist. His body and blood is the new covenant. That's what it means. This cup is the new covenant consisting of my blood. Okay? So to take it, you've got to receive his body and blood. Again, in Luke twenty-two nineteen, he says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then that phrase, remembrance, is a loaded phrase because there was this memorial or remembrance sacrifice back in the Old Testament law. And so it's sacrificial terminology. Jesus is making a sacrifice of himself, a sacrifice that is the Todah, yes, but it's also a remembrance sacrifice uh, 
that, uh, that calls upon God to remember his covenant. It, and it's interesting to compare our Lord's words at the institution of the Eucharist in Luke twenty two nineteen 19 with the words of his mother in the Magnificat. Our blessed mother praises God because he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, etc. And then our Lord commands us to do the Eucharist in remembrance of me. Put the phrases side by side, remembrance of me, remembrance of his mercy. What is the real mercy? It is me, that is Jesus, okay? Jesus is the mercy of God. Jesus is the mercy of God made flesh. Pope Benedict XVI talked about Jesus being, as it were, the incarnation of God's covenant, okay? And covenant and mercy are tied all up together. So Jesus is God's mercy. The Eucharist is God's mercy. Every time we celebrate the the Eucharist, mercy is becoming body, blood, soul, and divinity right there on the altar. It's becoming concrete, and we come forward and take the mercy on our tongue like that. And then you are what you eat. So when we take it on our tongue and take it into our body, we better go out of Mass when when the priest says, you know, um, you know, ita missa est in Latin, which basically means get out of here, it's over, okay? And, uh, like, why is the Latin so abrupt? You know, get out of here, you know, it's over. It's, you know, go get them, okay? You're filled with divine mercy, now get out of here and go be merciful to others because you have become mercy, because you are what you eat, see? So the Eucharist is the covenant. The Eucharist is the chesed. Let's say that together. Let's say Eucharist is the chesed. Let's say it together. Ready? Eucharist is the chesed. Amen? Amen. But then we have to make it concrete for others. And so both the Eucharist and alms are kind of concretizations. They're like uh, distillations of mercy, um, even though they're, they're distinct from one another. But all through the medieval times, they understood this, and they connected the Eucharist with mercy. And I want to show some cool medieval art at this time. And uh, so we're going to look at two examples here. I hope, I hope you can see this on the screen. Um, I tried to blow it up as uh, best I can. But what you see here is a pulley. And there's a rope on the pulley. And the, the pulley is anchored in heaven. You see Jesus up there with the saints? And on one side of the pulley, there's a basket. And that basket goes down into purgatory. Purgatory is the red place there, the flames of purgatory. Okay? And, uh, and a basket of souls is being lifted out of purgatory on the pulley system. Well, who's pulling on the pulley to lift the souls out of purgatory? Two people are. On the other side of the rope, you see a priest offering mass. You see the Eucharistic uh, uh, body and blood there on the altar? And the priest has his hands on the rope. And as he's offering the sacrifice of the mass, he's pulling on the pulley to pull the souls out of purgatory. But then somebody else is also pulling on the rope. And that's a lay person uh, down at the bottom there. And he is not passing out the bread of the Eucharist to the congregation, but he's passing out physical loaves of bread to the poor. You know? And this is the medieval mindset, okay? that we receive 
mercy in the Eucharist, and that helps to free souls from purgatory, so we can say masses on behalf of a person's soul. But another thing that we can do as in the communion of the saints to help those who are in uh, the church suffering in purgatory is to give alms, and that has merit before God in heaven, and we can the merit of that almsgiving can also be applied to our brothers and sisters who are in purgatory. So it's, um, it's a little bit comical and a little bit cartoonish in a way, but there's a profound theological point being made here, that there is a real connection between the mercy of God shown to us most dramatically in Christ, who gave his body and blood for us, celebrated on the altar, but then how we can turn around and we can be divine mercy, we can be Eucharist for others, by helping them in their material need. But notice, uh, the, the, the guy who's passing out bread isn't just writing a check to, you know, World Child Health Organization or something like that, okay? He's getting his hands dirty, and he's going out, and he's actually fi- finding people. And it, it's this personal thing. It's this personal reconciliation. Okay, let's look at another example. Um, And this is a a famous and very beautiful uh, medieval painting from about 1400 um, that's usually called St. Joachim and the Beggars. And who's portrayed here in the blue robe uh, is St. Joachim, and St. Anne is uh, behind him in uh, the black robe with the white uh, head covering. And we see in this beautiful piece of artwork that St. Joachim is passing out bread. But notice how he's passing out bread to the poor, but the bread looks like a Eucharistic host. It's, it's round, and he's pulling the bread out of a basket, which is um, colored almost gold, so it's almost like a tabernacle. And so the artist has portrayed St. Joachim uh, giving alms to the poor, but in a way that it makes it look like he's almost distributing the Eucharist from a tabernacle. Again, on the other side, we see a figure uh, who's meant to represent the ancient high priest. But the figure is dressed in a clerical garb that looks like what? Looks like a bishop, really, with a mitre there and uh, a chasuble and so on. So the, um, the medieval artist has portrayed the ancient high priest as if he were a Catholic bishop dressed for the celebration of the liturgy. And St. Anne, along with others, and that's probably the Blessed Mother there, uh, the girl dressed in white who's looking up into the face of the high priest. They're bringing offerings to the high priest the way that medieval peasants would bring goods for the, uh, the offering of the faithful at Mass. So we didn't always have currency in medieval Europe, so sometimes you would bring grain and other offerings the way that we would bring cash to put in the plate. And so they're bringing these offerings um, to the high priest who's portrayed as a bishop who's receiving the offerings of the faithful. Now, if you look closely at the face of St. Joachim and the face of the high priest, you see that they're identical. Okay? The artist has painted the same face on both persons. And if you look at their posture, you'll also see that their postures are virtually identical. They both have their arms in the same position. Um, So what is the artist suggesting by that? He's suggesting there's a profound connection between what we do when we offer alms and what goes on in the liturgy. St. Joachim is dressed for going out into society. 
but he, but the high priest is his double, and his high priest is the high priest is dressed for the celebration of mass. Okay, and so again, it's what we do for the poor is intimately connected to what we do in the liturgy, and when the when the uh, when the celebrant receives the offerings from the people and then goes on to celebrate uh, the Eucharistic offering, that's closely connected to the gift of mercy to those who are poor in society. So we need to think about that and how it can apply to our lives. Modern depersonalization of alms and charity harms the covenantal nature of mercy, which is always oriented to the building of family relations. And the gathering of alms and mass is a sacred act. I'm going to wrap up quickly here. We read in Acts that all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they sold all their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending to the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. Again, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to each as any had need. So they practiced a kind of charismatic communism uh, in the early church where, uh, oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the name, and then they're also, you know, they've got all their goods in common. And that's wonderful. And that works in small groups, and we still practice that in religious orders. So that has not gone away. People in religious life still live this community of goods. But as the church spread, it was found that you can't do this over broad distances, and it becomes cumbersome, etc. And so the practice became to just have everybody bring their excess to Mass on Sunday and put it at the feet of the bishop who was the successor of the apostles. And that is the origin of the passing of the plate. And Dr. Barber talked about this. You know, we think, you know, passing of the plate is an intermission, etc. We check out mentally. Or we think, oh, this is just a practical thing that we have to do. You know, we're all here to celebrate Mass and we got to keep the lights on and we got to give Father something to live on. So as long as everybody's here anyway, we're just going to pass the plate. But that's not really the truth. The passing of the plate is a sacred act. And so I encourage you, even if you give to the diocese in your parish electronically, do bring along a few bucks in your pocket so that you can physically participate in the rite because it is part of the sacred ritual, okay? And it's not just a throwaway thing, and it's not just for practical purposes, but it's really showing that we're being merciful to those in need and to the whole family of God by contributing of our material needs. It's an important part of Mass. So, alms have a privileged place as an expression of mercy, along with evangelization, along with the sacrament of reconciliation. I would encourage each one of us here that we think about how we can be more generous in our, uh, in our giving. Dr. Barber made a great example of a, of a man who carried around sandwiches with him. Um, something that I used to do uh, was, uh, was carry around like Burger King gift certificates in my pocket. And when I was, uh, you know, greeted by poor people in downtown Steubenville, again, not wanting to just give them cash, which they would probably use for cigarettes or something else, um, I would give them food coupons uh, to the local Burger King that we had downtown. Unfortunately, that Burger King has closed up. But in any event, um, that's one way. But, but we can also plan our giving, and, uh, but we want to try to make it as personal as possible. 
And there are Catholic organizations that allow you to sponsor an individual, like say maybe a child in a developing country, at a school where they're going to get a Catholic education, where they're going to learn the faith, but they're also going to be fed uh, physical meals and helped. Um, There's different organizations that do this. I'm going to call out one that I know of and trust. It's called Catholic World Mission. Catholic World Mission. And if, if, it, if it's on your heart that I want to help somebody personally in, in uh, the developing world, I'd like to help a child, you know, that I would know and have some information about and can pray for that child, okay? Just Google Catholic World Mission, and their site will pop up, and, and they have contact information, and you can send them a little email and say, you know, I'd like to be set up to to sponsor a specific child. You know, Venezuela is very much on my heart. I don't know if anybody's been reading about what's happening in Venezuela, but their, their terrible policies of that anti-Catholic rogue, uh, Hugo Chavez, um, has just destroyed their country, and now they don't even have enough food uh, for, for 80% of the people that live in the country. So when I started hearing about that, I thought, I want to support a child in Venezuela. So I got a hold of Catholic World Mission. They have schools there where they're, they're helping communities, and they said, fine, that's great. We'll set you up on a monthly offering, and, uh, and we'll, we'll uh, send you information on a specific child that you can pray for. So if that's on your heart, I would just want to suggest that. There's many, many other wonderful organizations out there. I don't want to mean to be exclusive. Maybe you know of one right now, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, there was an appeal made about this other group, and maybe I need to get back to them and so on. But let's make a resolution at this conference that we're not going to leave here without upping our generosity and finding another way that we can give of our material resources and do it in a personal way with somebody that we can know, whether it's through letters or face-to-face or something like that, to form that body of Christ and be the personal concretization of God's mercy. Amen? Let's close in prayer. And in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the, your mercy poured out to us through Jesus Christ. And we pray, pray that you would help make us instruments of mercy for others. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. This concludes the Gospel of Divine Mercy Conference Talk for Mercy and Alms, presented by Dr. John Bergsman, Fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. To learn more about the work of the St. Paul Center and to access its extensive archive of resources on Scripture, the sacraments, sacred liturgies, and much more, visit their website, stpaulcenter.com. Discerning Hearts would like to thank Dr. Scott Hahn and all those associated with the St. Paul Center for the opportunity to bring you this presentation. Discerning Hearts is a nonprofit Catholic media apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation. To hear and or to download freely hundreds of other programs dedicated to spiritual formation, visit discerninghearts.com. We pray this has been helpful for you and that you will tell a friend and visit discerninghearts.com.